0: We are in the middle of a fairly slow uh, analysis of all the different um, views of uh, the millennium and uh, last week uh, we walked through uh, historic premillennialism and uh, we we go to the other end of the spectrum, uh, postmillennialism tonight. I'm going to make an unusual number of uh, personal references which may sound a, a, li- a little bit as though I'm name-dropping. I'm not really. I, I just happened to, to um, have spent some time uh, in the company of many of um, the advocates of post-millennialism in Uh, the late 20th century. So, if you've got uh, the outline before you, uh, let me pray first, and then I want to draw your attention to a couple of the quotations right on the first page. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. Thank you for a moment in the middle of a a week, a busy week perhaps, uh, to gather together as... A family and to gather together in order to study and to try and understand a little more what it is that you have revealed about the future as well as the present. And as we uh, examine tonight um, post millennialism and what Revelation 20 may or may not mean we pray for wisdom and insight and that uh, grace uh, to agree to disagree with uh, our brothers and sisters uh, over issues that are not perhaps first of all and matters that affect the gospel itself. Uh, We pray especially tonight for the help of your Spirit, and that in all that we do and say, and in our time of prayer afterwards, that we might be enabled together to glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, right on the very uh, front page, I, I have a quotation from possibly... Uh, the most well known uh, post millennialist of a sort uh, in the 20th century. Uh, his name is Greg Banson. Uh, Greg Banson was my apologetics professor. Uh, he also taught uh, ethics. Uh, he did his uh, uh, PhD studies on the philosopher uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Uh, And he was perhaps, uh, and I say this uh, uh, with all sincerity, he was perhaps one of the smartest uh, men on his feet, uh, to be able to think on his feet that I think I've ever met. Uh, There's a very famous debate uh, that he had uh, with a well-known atheist, uh, which you can find on YouTube and uh, just um, just. Go to YouTube and and search for Greg Banson Debate and and you'll probably find it. Uh, And it's well worth listening to. Um, uh, He he had sort of two aspects to him and one was uh, was as a philosopher and as an apologist. Uh, But then when I was a student at seminary in uh, 1976, 77, 78, uh, he began to develop an interest in... Uh, eschatology, and uh, I, I sat through uh, in a Sunday school class for must have been well over a year uh, his uh, his understanding of the Book of Revelation, for example, uh, and then uh, sat and listened to his uh, ethics course, in which uh, he put forward a, a view known as theonomy, theonomy in, in Christian ethics. Um, a, got him into a heap of trouble with the seminary and uh, was dismissed. And uh, that's just part of history. And um, has since uh, died. Uh, Died, I think, in the middle 90s. Um, uh, Somewhere in this lecture, I think I have some uh, biographical details about him. Uh, But Greg Banson defines post-millennialism and and he was an advocate of a certain kind of post-millennialism Uh, in which he saw the end time, uh, a a millennium, not necessarily literally a a thousand years, but a period, a golden age before Jesus comes. So the second coming is post, after the millennium. So the millennium is before the second coming. Uh, And in that golden age, he advocated a return to the civil law code of the Old Testament, uh, almost, not quite, but almost a kind of reintroduction of a, a theocracy of sorts, except that this was a worldwide vision. I have to say that most of them only envisioned this in the United States rather than in South Korea or in Thailand or somewhere, um, But, but... Uh, and, and there were a group of, of uh, men, and I'm going to allude to several of them, who appeared in the mid-70s. Uh, uh, Dr. Davis was probably in Belhaven at that time in the 70s, so, or, or were you just in the pram? Maybe he was just seven years old in the 70s. But... but um, Uh, But Greg Banson uh, wrote uh, a book that caused a great deal of attention. Um, uh, It affected a number of uh, ministers, uh, both in the PCA, which was relatively new then, uh, and in the OPC, the Orthodox uh, Presbyterian uh, Church. Um, And and there are advocates of uh, theonomy, a view of a golden age in which there's a restoration of Old Testament civil law. Um, And he defines here uh, post-millennialism, apart from the other two schools of thought, premillennialism and amillennialism, by its essential optimism for the kingdom in the present age. Now that's not saying a whole lot. Actually, it's not saying anything at all, really, that Pre-millennial or a post-millennial mightn't agree with, uh, so. But, but it does. It does um, help us to understand that post-millennialists often charge everyone else, pre-mills and our mills, with being pessimistic, certainly about the future, but pessimistic also about the success of the gospel in the present um, age. And then the second name there, Ken Gentry. Ken Gentry still alive uh, and, and uh, still writing a great deal. Uh, and I haven't seen him, but he was a fellow classmate of mine uh, at seminary. And uh, in uh, the Zondervan publication, Three, View, Three Views on the Millennium and Beyond, he writes the chapter on post-millennialism um, and, and gives here something of a definition of post-millennialism, uh, which, we'll, which we'll examine now together. So, uh, turning over the page, uh, and I want to make three uh, preliminary observations. Number one, that both our millennialism, and we haven't really studied our millennialism, but our millennialism views the millennium as beginning at the ascension of Jesus and running through almost to the second coming, not quite to the second coming, but but this age is part of the millennium. Uh, Both our millennials and post-millennials differ from pre-millennials on this one crucial issue of the timing of the second coming. Both post-millennials and our millennials view the second coming as coming after the millennium. Either either we're already in the millennium or the millennium will occur in some golden age and then will come the second coming. But both of those differ from premillennials because premillennials believe that the millennium is after Jesus will return and then the millennium will begin. So there is a sense in which post mills and our mills are together on a certain issue and that's the timing of the second coming relative to the millennium. Now if you're lost... There, we've got another 45 minutes to go, uh, and just be still and quiet, and, and, uh, but I hope you've got that point. Um, that, that's fairly crucial. Uh, the second observation I want to make is uh, the stricter classification um, of R-mill, post-mill, pre-mill, that, that categorization of three views is a relatively recent classification. If you were to go back at least to the middle of the 19th century and then, and then go all the way back to the 18th, 17th, and 16th century, you, you, would not, you would not have that threefold classification. And so older theologians and even theologians from a reformed perspective would have only really spoken about pre and post. The, 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 the language of our millennialism Really, only begins in the 1930s, I think, and, and begins um, really as grows out, I think, of Princeton Seminary and grows out of the uh, of a certain uh, theology that has become um, almost the standard view uh, in wide circles of the Reformed faith. But but the but the language. R-mill, post-mill, pre-mill is relatively uh, recent. And we'll come back to that observation when we look at our millennialism um, specifically. And I can't remember whether, and I, th- I believe that's gonna be next week, but it, I, I now can't remember what the, what the topic next week is, but it should be logically um, our millennialism The third observation is uh, the problem of definition. If you define post-millennialists as Greg Banson just did on the cover, that post-mills are optimistic, they're certainly optimistic about the future, they see a golden age. And and you can imagine in the wake of a century, 20th century, in which there have been more world wars and wars generally than any other century, that that especially, especially in the first half of the 20th century, there was a great deal of pessimism. It was hard to be optimistic about the future in the wake of two world wars. Um, And um, if you define post-millennialism purely on the grounds of a a fairly loose category like optimism, you're going to to find yourself in difficulty defining the three views with any specificity. Because there are Optimistic R mills and there are pessimistic post mills. right? So it all gets a little fuzzy at the edges. And, and that does mean that sometimes certain theologians, and the, and the number one theologian would be somebody like B.B. Warfield, B.B. Uh, Warfield of Princeton um, uh, Seminary, uh, n- late 19th uh, century, B- people like B.B. Warfield. Who's in some circles he's, he's thought of as an optimistic, amillennialist, and then in other circles he is regarded as a postmillennialist, and there's a current debate about that. And and for those of you who are really into this in a big way, uh, Dick Gaffin, Richard B. Gaffin of Westminster Seminary, if you if you trace his. Uh, writings um, he he has made that something of his sort of calling card to uh, as it were rescue B.B. Warfield from the clutches of the post mills and bring him back into the R mill uh, camp uh, not uh, easy to do but, but he has certainly made that case uh, so point number two the, the the history and let let me this is a you know this is a 36,000 feet sort of trajectory here of the history of post millennialism and I'm I'm deliberately um, beginning as it were in the modern age rather than going back to uh, the patristics and and so on. So typically post millennialism is associated with these characters. Uh, Daniel Whitby, uh, who wrote a book called Paraphrase and Commentary on the New Testament in 1703, uh, who was an English um, theologian and commentator. It now may look as bad form on my part to then describe the principal character of postmillennialism as an Arminian priest of the Church of England, strongly anti-Calvinistic and accused of Unitarian tendencies, that kind of, that kind of muddies the water from the get-go. Uh, and I don't intend really to do that. I, I want to give postmillennialism a good airing here. But uh, there is some difficulty with one of the principal uh, exponents of postmillennialism uh, in the early 18th century. Uh, Another name, Thomas Brightman, from 1562 to 1607, uh, a a commentator and and wrote a a commentary on Revelation. And his books, uh, his commentary on Revelation, as I said last week, was enormously influential for uh, the Puritans, for example, who wrote the Westminster Confession. Uh, So, as the assembly met in 1643, one of the books that many of them had studied uh, and and studied in in considerable depth uh, would have been Thomas uh, Brightman, who was a post-millennialist, viewed a golden age at the end prior to the second coming. Crossing the pond uh, to New England in the similar period, uh, late 16th, early 17th century. John Cotton, uh, coming back to the to England, uh, John Owen, uh, perhaps the principal theologian of the 17th uh, century. And, and I've just picked uh, I've just picked one <clears throat> uh, aspect of John Owen, and that is uh, John Owen. Remember, in the 1640s, uh, the, the, the assembly, the, the Westminster Assembly meets. But in the 1640s, you have the civil war uh, between the Roundheads and Cavaliers, uh, parliamentarians and, and the Royalists of uh, England, uh, which, uh, which the Royalists lose. Uh, Oliver Cromwell is the victor of that civil war. So in the 1650s, for that decade or so, you have a republic. It's the only period in the entire history of, of England uh, where it is a republic. Uh, and, and it all comes to a colossal end uh, at the end, in 1660 with the uh, restoration of Charles II. Um Uh, and then an anti-Puritan period that followed. But in the 1650s, the Puritans are in charge. Oliver Cromwell is in charge. John Owen is Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, and Cromwell makes him the vice-chancellor of Oxford uh, University. Cromwell himself was the chancellor of Oxford University. So um, Calvinists Theology and Calvinist politics ruled the day in the 1650s, and John Owen is asked to preach a sermon before Parliament. I'm not sure there is an equivalent of that in our in our American culture, where where one of the leading it would be like, you know, John Piper or Al Mohler being asked to preach a sermon at the White House or Senate or, or, or or something. Uh, That that would be almost the equivalent. And and that scenario is unimaginable uh, for me today. But John Owen is asked to preach the sermon. And the sermon is called the kingdom of Christ. In which he expresses the view that multitudes of the nations would be converted and come under the lordship of Christ. Well that's optimism. And you you could say John Owen isn't saying anything more than what, what... is happening right now when, when we see millions of Chinese coming to faith in Christ, or as I was hearing last week, an incredible thing happening in Indonesia at the minute uh, with uh, uh, churches of tens of thousands, all of them point. Calvinist churches in Indonesia, something incredible is happening in Indonesia, uh, and, and you could say John, Owens, John Owen isn't saying anything more than what our uh, millennialist might say about the spread of the gospel uh, in the kingdom. That doesn't necessarily make you um, a post-millennialist looking for a golden age, a millennium, prior to the return of Christ. But John Owen is... Uh, because of this sermon, is often labeled a post-millennialist. Moving on down, uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, in 1739, just at the beginning of what we call the Great Awakening, um, preaches a series of sermons which then, after he's dead, is published as a book called the history of the work of redemption. Uh, Interestingly, the history of the work of redemption is now often thought to be one of the very first sort of biblical theologies, a theology uh, that begins with Genesis and works its way through to the book of Revelation, telling the story and the theological significance of the history of redemption, something that's very popular in the 20th century and popular among uh, folk like us. Um, but it was fairly new when Jonathan Edwards uh, did it. And um, tis not unlikely, he says in, in one of these sermons, tis not unlikely that this work of God's spirit that is so extraordinary and wonderful is the dawning, or at least a prelude, he's speaking about the great awakening, of that glorious work of God so often foretold in the scripture. And there are many things that make it probable that this work will begin in America. So there. Uh, so uh, now, if you'd have been living in 1739, with the astonishing things that happened, hundreds of thousands of people come to saving faith in, in, in weeks, in matters of weeks and months in New England, in what we call the Great Awakening, the preaching of uh, George Whitfield uh, in the Carolinas and, and, and elsewhere. Uh, this, you'd be forgiven. If, if for saying something like Jonathan Edwards saying that this is the dawning perhaps of the golden age, that, that that is spoken of, at least he thinks is spoken of in the Old Testament, and obviously it's beginning in America because this is where the revival is taking place. Actually, there were similar things happening in Northern Ireland, for example, in Scotland, uh, also part of that Great Awakening uh, movement. Well. We'll we'll quickly pass through now a series of names associated with uh, um, the Princeton uh, Seminary, Archibald uh, Alexander, uh, his son uh, Joseph Addison, uh, J.A. Alexander, uh, who wrote a a very well-known commentary on uh, the prophecy of Isaiah, particularly chapter 2. And verses 2 to 4, which we'll come back to a little later in the lecture. And I've got a quotation uh, there, which I won't read, uh, from uh, J.A. Alexander. And then the Hodges, the father and the son. There are two Alexanders and there are two Hodges, Charles Hodge. Um, and I've got a definition, uh, uh, a statement from his uh, systematic theology. And then his son, um, Archibald Alexander Hodge... Um, named after Archibald Alexander. It all gets very confusing at at Princeton Seminary, but this is uh, the son of Charles Hodge, uh, in in which uh, he advocates a similar view to his father, uh, a a uh, post-millennial view, a a view expecting a golden age at the end of history. Now, uh, let me move down to the 20th century and pick up three names of, of some importance uh, J. Marcellus Kick, An Eschatology of Victory. Uh, John Jefferson Davis, perhaps less well-known now, uh, Victory of Christ's Kingdom. And then Ian Murray, who, who you know because he's been here and, and close friend of Dr. DeWitt uh, and author of uh, numerous books uh, um, and a close friend of Sinclair Ferguson and, and myself, uh, uh, the, uh, wrote The Puritan Hope. And The Puritan Hope was was a a, a very influential book because it was describing the eschatological views, end-time views of the Puritans, uh, which when when he wrote it was less well-known than it is now. There's been something of a revival of interest in Puritanism and and we we know a whole lot more than, than was the case when Ian Murray actually wrote this book. And it was somewhat surprising... Um, the views that the Puritans held with respect to end times, in particular, the expectation of the conversion of Jews uh, prior to uh, the coming of Christ in fulfillment of Romans 11:26, and all Israel shall be saved. So when Ian Murray, I remember the, when this book was published, I, I remember reading through it, being completely overwhelmed by it. Uh, this was all relatively new to me. Uh, of this, this huge... Um, expectation among the Puritans, among Reformed uh, preachers and theologians of the 17th century with regard to a a considerable optimism about what would happen before Jesus comes and and how that affects your view of history, how how that affects your daily life if if you think there's, there's enormous blessing coming. Uh, because there are those who are walking around saying things are getting worse and worse and things are going to get dark and there's going to be the Battle of Armageddon and Gog and Magog and and, and, and there's, there's nothing good to look forward to. Whereas whereas these folk are saying almost the opposite. There's, there's tremendous optimism with regards to the future. Now, a little twist uh, under the title Reconstructionist, and here's Greg Banson again, because Some of them, and and Greg Banson would say most of them, and and that in my view was not true, but an expectation that that golden age would not only be a golden age in which lots and lots and lots of people are converted, but a golden age in which there would be such reform in a societal and judicial manner that laws, um, state laws... Um, laws of of the country, um, politicians uh, would adopt a, a, an Old Testament civil code approach to uh, law. Uh, Reconstructionists and and how that would affect n- not just not just jurisprudence and, and law, but but also affect things like economics. So you have Gary North. Uh, who's still alive, Gary, Gary North, uh, well-known economist um, and, and reconstructionist. So he was writing about, uh, about a certain Old Testament um, view of economics. Uh, and uh, David Chilton, uh, again, I was in class with David Chilton. He was in my graduating class in the 1970s. Uh, wrote a number of uh, books, died, as you see, in 1997. Uh, But probably the most influential of all of those books was The Days of Vengeance, which he published in 1987, which really is a commentary. It's a a weird commentary, but it's a commentary on the book of Revelation. It's like no other commentary you've ever read on the book of Revelation, but it is from a a reconstructionist point of view, uh, expecting... Um, not just a golden age, but a reintroduction of Old Testament civil law and, and, and certain other practices during this golden age. And then Ken Gentry, uh, who's uh, still alive and, and speaks at uh, conferences and so on, you may know his name, uh, an ordained minister of the Reformed Presbyterian Church General Assembly, RPCGA. Now, what are the main features of post-millennialism. And again, these are broad brush uh, categories, but let's try and get a handle now on what, what are the main features of post-millennialism. Number one, the triumph of the gospel. So l- let me pick out Lorraine Betner's definition of post-millennialism. We have defined post-millennialism as that view of the last things which holds that the kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of individuals, that the world eventually is to be, and here's the kicker, Christianized. The world is going to be Christianized and that the return of Christ is to occur at the close of a long period of righteousness and peace commonly called the millennium. That's about a, as good a definition of postmillennialism. It's much more, uh, it's much more specific than Greg Banson's uh, definition of pe- uh, post on the cover of our lecture tonight. So, a, a golden age in which, notice, the whole world, at least a generation or two, will be Christianized. So, so looking forward to a, a world in which the majority... Presumably in every country, not just in North America, but in in Australia, New Zealand, in in Iceland, in Thailand, in, in Zimbabwe, and wherever, the majority are believers. Now, I can imagine some of you have never heard that, perhaps. I mean, I can imagine that that's possible within this room. Uh, that, that you've never heard anybody advocate such a thing, but, but that would be the view of postmillennialists, and postmillennialists tend to think that that has been the majority view, uh, and, and was the view of um, the majority of folk uh, in, say, the Westminster Assembly, the authors of the Westminster Confession. And uh, that that I would challenge a a great deal. But that's an accurate accurate description of what post-millennialism is—the triumph of the gospel. Uh, Closely allied to that, then, is the idea, the notion of a golden age—a golden age known as the millennium. They may differ as to how literal that millennium is going to be, whether it's going to be a thousand years or more or less a thousand years or whether a thousand years is just meant to be um, meant to be a symbol. So there are post millennialists who believe that this golden age will only last for a generation or two. What, what does that make? 60, 70 years or, or so. Uh, so there are differences of opinion. But the idea, the notion of a golden age, history is getting... Better, not worse. Uh, Thirdly, the sequence here of end time events. Gospel advance in fulfillment of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So the gospel is moving out into all the nations of the world. So the nations are being converted What does that mean exactly? Individuals are being converted, people are being converted, people are being renewed by the Holy Spirit and that's affecting what they do in their spheres of responsibility including government and and judiciary and economics and business and and so on. So, So the language then gets a little fuzzy. Not only are people being converted but But nations are being converted. Not clear what that means. Uh, Then the millennium begins. A golden age begins. Whether it's a generation or two generations or or literally a thousand years. Then Satan is released for a little while. Revelation 20. Then comes the second coming. That's the sequence of events that defines post-millennialism. At the heart of post-millennialism, if you want to see a golden age in which, in which the majority of the world are converted, it's to your advantage then to adopt a view that says, well, the Jews are going to be converted. Millions and millions of Jews, uh, diaspora Jews and Jews living in, in, in Israel are going to be converted in fulfillment of a specific text in Romans 11:26, and all Israel shall be saved. We've looked at this text before in, in previous weeks. But, but you can understand that if you're a postmillennialist, you, you want that text to be saying the Jews are going to be converted. So it, it, it wouldn't make any sense if you're a mill and you didn't, you didn't advocate that view of Romans 11:26. As a side thought, if you're still tracking and you haven't switched off, Just because you believe that Romans 11.26 advocates conversion of Jews doesn't necessarily make you a post-millennialist. Or does it? John Murray, for example, has a classic exposition of Romans 11.26 that advocates conversion of Jews at the end of time. But if you read John Murray's interpretation of the Olivet Discourse, which we looked at a few weeks ago... In my opinion, that's a classic arm millennial interpretation. Right? So, so the fact that you believe Romans 1126 advocates the conversion of Jews doesn't make you a post-millennialist, but if you 're a post-millennialist, you do want to advocate Romans 1126. Uh, and then some, not all, and uh, not even the majority, some advocate um, a view known as the dominion of Christ and and what's now become known as Reconstructionism. And to be honest, and and this thing goes out over the internet, so I I need to be circumspect in how I put this for sure, but it's my observation that Reconstructionism, whilst it was popular in the 1970s and 80s, is nowhere near as popular now, today, as it was 2010. 5, 30, 40 years ago. I think, I think, I think even those who are listening, who are reconstructionists, will agree with that assessment. Now, what is the biblical case for post-millennialism? And the biblical case are, uh, is made of a series of, of axioms. N- number one being the promises of universal blessing. And let's take a few of them. Uh, in the Abraham narrative, uh, Genesis 1316I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth and so on, so, so there 's a promise that includes at least the idea of lots and lots and lots of converts. Now, is that going to be literally true at any point in history? other than in the new heavens and in the new earth, that the seed of Abraham will be like the, like the dust uh, of the earth. Or in uh, Genesis 15, and he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them, that he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Interpreting that as, there will be a point in history when, the offspring of Abraham will be like the stars in the night sky. Uh, and so on. Another text from Genesis 17, Genesis uh, 22. But let me drop down to the very last um, text in the parable in Matthew 13. Uh, he put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And these two parables of Jesus are interpreted by post-millennialists in a very literal fashion that the expectation is that the the leavening of the gospel is to be seen throughout the world at a certain point in history, in our history. not, Not just in the new heavens and in the new earth, but in our history there's going to be a point at which you will be able to say... The leaven has influenced the entire earth. Or this tree has grown to be the largest tree. So. um, I'm saying the promises then of universal uh, blessing. uh, In the Abrahamic narrative. In uh, these parables in Matthew. Um, Also scriptures that seem to imply the present dominion of Christ. Not that Christ will one day exercise dominion over all the earth. So, So there's an aspect in which we pray thy kingdom come so that the rule of God will be manifest in all the world at some point in the future. But that this this is going to be manifest in our future, in, in, in real space-time history. So take a prophecy like the second chapter of um, Isaiah. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains... And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, he shall decide uh, disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Remember, this text is above the United Nations building in New York. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, what is that prophecy saying? Is that prophecy saying something that's going to be literally true in the history of the world where... The world has been Christianized, right? So there's no war. There'll be no need for an army. There'll be no need for uh, a police force, uh, right? If you interpret this passage in a literal way, and the charge of post-millennialists is that we read passages like this and we spiritualize them, that this isn't speaking of any history that's going to happen in this world. This is speaking of the of the age to come. It's, it's speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. It's a picture of the new Jerusalem, if you like. The, 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 the new world order in which there will be no no uh, war or strife. And similar passages in uh, other, uh, other parts of the prophecy of um, Isaiah. So what do you do with all the bad stuff? What do you do with the book of Revelation and all the bad stuff? Well, you bring it back to... Um, AD 70, right? All the bad stuff in the book of Revelation is predicting events that actually were fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the so-called preterist view or semi-preterist view of the book of uh, Revelation, which we've already talked about in previous uh, uh, weeks. So, the question... Uh, um, that Revelation 20 poses is a question, what does the thousand years mean? The thousand years in which Satan is cast into a prison. And post will say, well, that can't be now because Satan is advancing in certain parts of the world. There's war and there's ISIS and there's... Uh, there's, there's, there's bad stuff. Right? So the millennium hasn't begun yet. The millennium is still future. Right? And, when, and when the millennium begins, that'll be when Satan will be cast into prison for a thousand years. He'll be released for a little while and then the second coming will come. But, but, but the millennium hasn't yet begun. The Puritans thought it had begun in the 1650s, John Owen thought it might have begun. Jonathan Edwards thought it began in 1739 at the Great Awakening. In the 1970s, for some reason, some people thought they could see it coming. They could see little little clouds on the horizon that might have been portents of a of a beginning of a millennium. Um, Well, you pay your money and you get your choice here. But but all of this all of this. Uh, is is symptomatic of how do you interpret the millennium of Revelation 20 last week we were looking at a pre-millennium so so pre-millennial so the second coming comes comes before the millennium so the millennium definitely hasn't started yet because the second coming has to happen first and then the millennium will occur this this is the millennium hasn't started yet but it will start in a golden age before the second coming. Uh, there's another view, uh, and that's uh, our millennialism, and we'll, we'll have a look at that, uh, I think that's next week. I, I really can't remember, but it should be logically next week. But if it's not, I'll apologize next week. Uh, but I, I think that's the trajectory of thought. Uh, save your questions uh, for the end. Uh, when, when, uh, when uh, we'll, we'll have some uh, Q&A together, but my time has, uh, has gone. Father, we thank you. Um, thank you that you have been pleased to reveal, however, however difficult uh, some of this might be. There are certain things about it that we cannot uh, evade and escape. Uh, the second coming of our Lord Jesus, that history as we know it will end one day, that Jesus will appear on a cloud with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and those who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And uh, we pray, thank you for uh, the hope and expectation of the success of the gospel However, we may interpret that, that all the elect will be saved. And uh, we do pray, even if we're not post-millennial in our view, we do pray that we might be as optimistic as the Bible would have us be optimistic about the spread of the gospel and the urgency of the need to go to uh, all the nations of the world and to preach the gospel of redeeming uh, grace. So bless us, we pray. Forgive us our sins. We ask it all uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we'll uh, have a time of prayer in a few minutes.